turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. This morning is a fourth sermon in a series, which I've called the Psalms of My Life. These are psalms that have meant a great deal to me over the years of, of being a Christian, of being a pastor. Many of these psalms I've preached before. These are new sermons that I'm preparing for this occasion. But I want to commend these psalms to you, both in your own devotional lives, as a congregation that we would sing these psalms, as we sing many psalms, and as a help. The title of this morning's sermon is a question and an answer. Question, what is man? Answer, man is glorious. Now, if you need proof that the perfect biblical world in which children play unharmed with snakes like cobras, if, that, if you need proof that that world has not yet arrived, just ask Professor Henry S. Jones, Jr. You might know him better as Indiana Jones, the raider of the Lost Ark. In this classic movie, one of the most famous lines uttered by Harrison Ford is, I hate snakes. Indiana Jones' hatred of snakes, known as ophidiophobia, is but one example of human beings' unnatural revulsion to things in God's created world. Now, I say unnatural revulsion. It's right to be a little concerned about snakes, particularly if you don't know if red and yellow kill a, a fellow, red and black put him back, or however that's supposed to go with the coral snake. So some fear of the natural world is appropriate. I'm calling it an unnatural fear of snakes or of creation because in the Bible, as God tells the story of the world, the world has not always been this way. It hasn't always been the case that animals devour one another, that humans and the created world are constantly at enmity, man versus nature. And in the Bible, it won't always be this way. There will come a time when the enmity and the danger and the blood and the tooths and the claws will give way to peace. And what's more, and this may be the most controversial statement I'll make this morning, you'll, you'll hear me out through the end, progress is possible even now. So those three things bear repeating. It's unnatural because it hasn't always been this way. It's not always going to be this way. And in this matter of the hostility of the world, progress is possible even now. Progress in the face of what man and nature have become because of sin. Progress in both, both in the area of what psychologists call phobias. Now I'm going to define a phobia. This is a pastor's definition a sin-based revulsion against God's good gifts. Not a smart hesitation, a sin-based revulsion against God's good gifts. And then there are what psychologists call manias. This is the pastor's definition of a mania. A sin-based attachment, over-attachment to God good gifts. So I'll demonstrate this visually for you. Phobia. Mania. 
So phobia is too much fear, and a mania is too much love. So how do we make progress in our phobias and in our manias? I think we need the instruction of Scripture. We need to better understand or be reminded of the story of God, of how it was and how it's going to be and what we're supposed to do in the meantime. And I think there is nowhere in the Bible where that story of mankind and God's special call on human beings is more beautifully portrayed than in the eighth Psalm. Nowhere, nowhere quite as lovely is this story told. So again, my sermon title this morning is What is Man? Question, what is man? Answer, man is glorious. And by describing the glory or value, the significance of man in God's story in Psalm 8, I'm hoping you're going to discover or better understand your role in the world that God's made. Now, this is particularly important for students and young people. I mean, the old people, you know, we're sort of running out of time. But if you're young, God willing, the future's in front of you. Now, I'll let you define who's young. I've been kind of vague there, if you noticed. You need to know what your job is in the world, why you're on the planet, and what God has for you. I'm hoping that by studying Psalm 8 this morning that I'll capture and captivate your imagination about your role in the world. So let's read together Psalm 8. Why don't you follow along in your Bibles? I'll read out loud. This is the inspired, the inerrant Word of God. Unlike anything else you'll probably hear this week, this is always true. You can depend on it. Let's give our attention to it. Choir Master... Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Getith, Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still, to hush the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your holy word. What a beautiful story of what the purpose of humankind is, of man. We want to know, Lord, or be reminded of how we fit into this story. So help us now as your word is explained. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we begin answering this question, what is man? Man is glorious. I want to start with the origin of man's glory. In explaining my answer, man is glorious, where does our glory come from? What is its source? What is its origin? My first point then is the origin man's glory is God. The origin of man's glory is God. Take a look at what the text says about God's glory. 
First of all, it begins and ends with a statement of God's glory. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this is called a bookend. You can picture a a bracket on a, on, a, on a line of books here and a bracket on the other side and they're squished together. And when scripture brackets something with the statement that's the same at the beginning and at the end, it's telling you this is everything you need to know about what you're about to read. It's like it's the A to Z. The glory of God is the point of this poem. And so any glory that we see belonging to any other thing, including man, originates with God. That's because God's glory is essential to his being. If God were to cease to be glorious, he would cease to exist. God could no longer stop being glorious than he could stop being God. He was never not glorious. He is the source of all the glory that's described in this beautiful poem. He set his glory above the heavens. He communicates his glory out of the mouth of babies and infants to still or to hush the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, there is a glorious... I mean, when you lie on your back on a summer night and lace your fingers behind your head in the field or the grassy yard and you look up on a clear night, maybe in the Poconos or the... Adirondacks, maybe not in South Jersey, but in some places in South Jersey, the sky gets dark enough. And certainly where I moved here from, Tucson, Arizona, and Herfs were in New Mexico for a while. Southern Texas, black sky, white salt, stars. The moon. Have you seen a, a big, white, platter of a moon rising over the trees in your backyard before. That's glorious. I mean, it literally is shining, but not with its own light, is it? It's reflecting the light of the sun, and that's an illustration then of how all creation is reflecting the glory of God. This poem is actually silent about where the glory of creation comes from. If you look carefully, it doesn't say specifically The creation is resplendent with God's glory, but it's a a clear and necessary inference from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 19 does make it clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8 doesn't say that in so many words, but it, it describes it. It paints that picture for you, and it draws you in. And then the rest of creation. Man is crowned with glory and honor. That's where we're going with this. Man is given dominion or rulership, gentle lordship, I heard it explained once, over the works of God's hands. All things are under his feet, the glorious sheep and oxen. These are domesticated animals. And then the beasts of the field, the wild animals. And then sort of encompassing the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and everything in between. It all has its own kind of glory. But all the glory comes from God. And specifically... In verse 1, you have set your glory, that glory, if you're writing in your Bible or taking notes, write glory, verse 1, equals royal majesty. The glory of verse 1 is actually a kind of royal majesty. It's a specific sort of glory. There's many kinds of glory in the Bible. It's like choosing paint colors at Lowe's. 
you can get all kinds of glory. This glory in verse 1 is a royal majesty or a dignity, a nobility belonging to kings. Now, kings and queens have been in the news lately with the death of Queen Elizabeth. And if you watched any of those or you saw pictures or you, if you listened to any of those accounts, a lot of so-called pomp and circumstance, trumpets and flowers and processions and uniforms and ceremonies for weeks. Well, this is the royal majesty of God. Think about the pomp and circumstance belonging to the Creator. If human beings can orchestrate a ceremony that's a week or two long that evokes awe and wonder and open mouths at the expense, imagine the awe and wonder at the royal majesty, the dignity, the nobility of Almighty God as He processes into the chamber. And what this says is, in verse 1, that royal majesty has been placed, situated above the heavens. So the picture we're being asked to imagine is the most incredible thing that you can picture in your own mind by looking up and seeing the infinite, seemingly infinite expanse. Space is not infinite. But seemingly infinite expanse of space with the far-flung stars, galaxies, nebulas, asteroids, planets, distant suns, black holes. And you just say, wow. Wow translates into every language, by the way. God's royal majesty is above that. So as soon as you think you've looked high enough, even with the telescope, the Hubble telescope, or its younger brother, I don't remember the name, a space-floating telescope, one that goes all the way out to Neptune and beyond. The farthest we can see, that's the beginning of the royal majesty of God. That's the kiddie pool, the sandbox of the glory of God. As Isaiah sees this vision, it's the hem of his robe. Now you know what a hem is. Look at your pants or your shirt, your, your cuff on your shirt or your dress. It's the, the, the stitching on the edge. And the, the heavenly temple which God created to indwell, Isaiah is transported in a prophetic vision in Isaiah 6 into the heavenly temple and it's completely filled with the stitching on God's robe because His royal majesty is above the heavens. I'm going at length here to show you that the origin of man's glory is not man, but God. It comes from God. He is the essential, essentially glorious one. But he's chosen to reveal it, and I've mentioned this a little bit already. But look at 1a. You may have missed this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If the second half of chapter 8, verse 1, talks about the far-reaching cosmic glory, is that a good phrase? The cosmic glory of God? The first part of verse 1 talks about the glory of His fellowship. The relationship with God is glorious. O Lord, Jehovah, I've explained before the capital L-O-R-D means Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the divine name. 
Let me retell you that story. Moses is in the desert just doing his shepherding duties and he comes upon a bush that is on fire but it's not being burned. And he's told Moses, take off your feet because what? The place you're standing is holy ground. And he did what you and I would do, which is yes, sir, and did it in a minute. And so Moses is, is on his face. He's bare, barefooted in the presence of this glorious God. And God says, essentially, Moses, I love you. I love the people that you're a part of. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to redeem you. This is relational glory. And Moses says, essentially, okay, how do I know it's you? What's your name? Now, I've always felt that's a little bold of Moses, but it's a good question. And he says, my name is Yahweh, Jehovah, which means I am that I am. I am with you, I have been with you, and I will always be with you. And so it's a relational glory because of the divine name, but it's also relational because look at the pronoun in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. He doesn't say, my Lord, David doesn't say. David says, our Lord. See, God is the God of a people, not of individuals. There are no free agents in the kingdom of God, both in the Old and in the New Testament. He has had a church, and the church or the community, the people, the congregation of God, the chosen ones of God, the elect ones of God, are those who belong to Him. He has made Himself a people because He is relationally glorious. And His goal in making a people, starting with Adam and Eve, and then ultimately flowing out of the garden even after sin through Noah, and there was a people in the ark, and then through Abraham, and then Abraham was 70 persons, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob. And then when you get to Exodus 1, you realize that the people of God are so numerous that Egypt's getting nervous. Pharaoh doesn't like these Hebrews because there's so many children and so many men and so many women that they're beginning to outnumber the Egyptians, and Pharaoh is a little worried about his security. So the relational glory, our Lord, the community of God, grows and grows and grows in the Bible. And so Habakkuk 2.14 summarizes the mission which we're given in Genesis 1, which is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the program. It's to take the essential glory of God and spread it everywhere you can. And so Psalm 113 verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all the nations, and His glory is above the heavens. One more piece about the glory of God, and I'm, this is my longest point. Take a look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. A third aspect of God's glory is that it is a surprising glory. When God expresses His glory, it tends not to come the way that you think. Look at the text. 
Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Now, have you ever held a little baby? Have you ever seen a nursing infant? If you were to choose someone for the next Marvel superhero movie, it would not be a nursing baby. God has chosen to reveal His glorious strength through the least likely source, a nursing infant and a baby. Now I'm taking the infants here as capable of basic conversation, like mama, dada, maybe even I love you. That's a little more complex, but not much more than that. So you would not expect the great preacher or herald of the glory and strength of God to be a baby or a child. It's surprising. So all the foes of God, the picture is here, all the enemies of God, all the avengers, those who are scoffing and mocking and doing battle against the Lord, we read about them in Psalm 2, all of those guys and gals are all assembled And God brings forth a little baby. And that's where his strength comes out. It's a surprising glory. Now, this isn't unusual to Psalm 8. Ever since the fall of man into sin, human beings have tried to outdo God, to outshine God's glory, to polish our shields and try to be better than God. Time and again, in response, God shows the foolishness of such efforts by triumphing in unexpected ways. So, instead of feeding his people in the wilderness like kings and queens, he gives them manna, which appears unbeknownst to them from an unknown source. That's what manna means, is what is this stuff? And they, it requires absolutely no effort on their part except just to pick it up. This is the victorious people of God? Under Joshua, Jericho's mighty walls fall at the blast of a trumpet. And we're not talking about like the reverberating sort of sound frequency here. This is just a loud note that says, God is amazing. And that was after circling the city for seven days with worship songs. And in the days of the judges, And at one point, with Gideon, God says, no, you've got too many warriors. Too many warriors? What are you talking about, God? Don't we want to win? Yes, but I want to win in a surprising way because my glory is surprising. Reduce the number, and then we'll go out to battle. That way we'll know who actually won the battle. And this pattern continues in the New Testament as well. These nursing babes and infants Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty five prays this, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them unto children. And then, are you familiar with the story at Palm Sunday, the so-called triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem, finally at the end of the gospel? They're cutting branches. They're throwing them on the, on the road. He's riding, a, riding a, a, a colt, which is 
the mount of a, of a victorious king whose kingdom is at peace. And the children are singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means the Lord saves. And the Pharisees, the enemies, the avengers, the foes are all gathered around and said, you need to make those children be quiet. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8. So that's the origin of man's glory. What is man? Man is glorious. And we need to know that his glory comes from God. My second point flows out of this, and more briefly, man's glory is borrowed. Secondly, human beings are not essentially glorious, but their glory, your glory, comes from God. It is given to you. It is borrowed. A couple of weeks ago, I borrowed a tool from a friend, and it sat in my garage. I was careful with it, and until I got to use it, it was always on my mind making sure that nothing would happen to it. And then when I used it, I cleaned it up, and I gave it back to him. I tried to give it back in as good a shape, if not better, than when I got it. You've borrowed glory from God. Like that tool, you've been asked to take care of it and to return it to God, if I may put it this way, in better shape than when you got it. Any goodness or nobility or royal majesty that you have, and you have it, all of you are like princes, kings and queens, princes and princesses in the court of God. It has been borrowed from God and is designed by God so that you would use it for God. When I used that tool, I was very conscious that it didn't belong to me. Now, when did mankind first get this glory? Do you know how the story begins? His name is Adam in the garden, and he is made how? In the image of God, in the likeness of God, imitating his glory. It's like clothing, and sometimes I wondered if there was a slight glow to Adam. Probably not. Was there a halo? No. But the halo in those art works of art is helpful in reminding us that there's something special about these great early saints, particularly Adam in the garden before sin. And, but the glory wasn't just, say, clothing. It's like clothing, but it was also like fuel. The glory of God given to Adam, the image and likeness of God was intended to compel Adam to do work for God. It would be as if my friend who loaned me the tool also gave me the strength, power, desire, and plans to make a perfect product as a result of using that tool. It's a pretty good deal. All I would need to do is use it according to its design. So the glory is borrowed and it is powerful. It's part of the Creator's empowering you and me to fulfill our created purposes. But that glory was also forfeited when man ignored or despised his created gift. And as a result, he and all of us since then have experienced catastrophic loss. Psalm 4.2, which we heard preached last Sunday, how long will you turn my glory into shame? And that's what sin does. 
Sin takes the beautiful, radiant, powerful, wonderful, pure glory of God and tramples on it. it it's like a perfectly white piece of paper and it crumples it up and throws it in the trash, turning my glory, God says, my borrowed glory into shame. And so Romans chapter 1 describes a scenario in which mankind, instead of worshiping the one essential glorious God, has, has made a bad, a bad trade. When my brother was little, you know, the dime is smaller than the nickel. You know this trick, right? I'll give you this big coin if you give me that little coin. So the big coin is worth five cents. The little coin's worth 10 cents. So I make out five cents in that deal. And there's something deceptive about the glory of man and worshiping cre the creation. It looks big because it's close by and it's near at hand and it seems to give us immediate payoffs. But in comparison, it's not just a nickel. It's like counterfeit. Creation wasn't made to bear the weight of worship and devotion. And so the bargain in Romans 1, the bad bargain, is that you exchange the glory of God for the glory of creatures. And it says four-footed creatures. So we're, we're literally worshiping animals. And some traditions, religious traditions, do worship animals. God told mankind to be fruitful and multiply, but Hosea 4.7 says, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. We're multiplying the wrong thing. We're making sin instead of glorious glory bearers for God. And so Hosea 4.6 says, the verse before that, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We don't even know what we're doing sometimes. When you forfeited the glory of God, you became ignorant of your calling and of your created purpose. Well, this brings me to my third point. What is man? The question we're asking. The answer is man is glorious. The origin of our glory is God. But the nature of our glory is borrowed. Finally, thirdly, we need our glory restored, and it's restored in Christ. Our glory was borrowed, but you and I lost our created glory because of sin. So that glory needs to be restored, and it is restored through Jesus Christ. How does Jesus do this? Well, the Christian message is this. Jesus restores man's glory because Romans 5.14 says, Adam is the first man. Jesus is the second man. Specifically, it says, he is the first Adam, Adam, and Jesus is the second and last Adam, or Adam. Here's what this means. Adam is the father of all of the human race. So he's like the spring of a fountain. And when Adam sinned, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So anyone coming from that stream of first Adam has lost the glory of God. And so we need a new Adam to come, not from Father Adam, but from Father God. Now, do you know how God sent the new Adam? He didn't, like in a Greek mythology, he didn't impregnate a woman that's carnal and blasphemous. What he did was, is supernaturally, he overshadowed a Virgin Mary 
and sent the second person of the Trinity, his son, and clothed that person with human flesh from the womb of his mother in the virgin birth. And Jesus became God incarnate, the second Adam. And that's the gospel. The good news is that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law and restore the glory which we forfeited in our sin. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteous glory, the majestic glory of God is restored in sinners through Jesus Christ, the righteous one and the glorious one. My favorite verse here is Romans 8.4. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinner, but he came like a sinner. And he did that so that there would be no condemnation any longer for you and me. You see, God's judgment rests upon all the sons and daughters of Adam, but God's blessing rests on all the sons and daughters of Christ. And you're a son or daughter of Adam by birth. You're a son or a daughter of Christ by the new birth. And so what is man? That's the question we're asking. I'm saying man is glorious. We were glorious, and we are once again glorious through Jesus Christ. So Psalm 8 is a poetic statement that the world is not the way today. The world is not the way it used to be. It used to be better. But it's also a statement that says the world isn't going to always be this way. David's ponderings in verse 3, looking at the heaven, wondering at his insignificance. One day he and you and I won't wonder. It'll be obvious and clear. I also think Psalm 8 says progress is possible. Progress is possible. Now here we confront a few different views that I think need to be addressed. Some will teach that the kingdom of Christ is completely in the future. But Psalm 8 doesn't teach that. Psalm 8 says that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, past tense, and have crowned him, are crowning him, and will crown him with glory and honor. So this, this verse, right in the middle of our passage, really at the heart of Psalm 8, tells us that God has, is, and will be doing something. Progress is possible. Likewise, you have given him dominion, are giving him dominion, and will finally one day fully give him dominion over all things under his feet. And we know that because in Hebrews chapter 2, this exact verse is quoted and referred to Christ. And all things have been placed under Christ's feet, Hebrews 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, are being placed under his feet, which happens every single time someone believes the gospel and becomes a new baby in Christ. I also think it happens when we make advances in modern medicine and illness is set aside, when we do away with slavery and with prostitution and drug use goes down, when, when your streets are clean because several 
generations in a row live together and they're living together to make their street a beautiful place to live. Progress is possible. When neighbors formally at enmity because a Christian moves in, brokers a truce between two warring neighbors. Progress is possible. But I don't think, as some might teach, that we can achieve the kingdom of Christ in its fullness before he returns. Again and again and again in the Bible we're told that as righteousness increases, enmity and opposition increases sort of tit for tat. So there's going to be a war between the sons of the serpent and the sons of the woman until Jesus comes. Plus, we're told in Philippians chapter 3, 19 and 20, we're told that the kinds of changes necessary to usher in the new world, only God himself can work such that it's compared to a resurrection from the dead. And I can't raise myself from the dead. So no matter how much progress you and I make, the kind of progress fundamentally and ultimately that's needed is equated in the Bible to a resurrection from the dead. And that can only happen when heaven comes to earth and when God comes back. But finally, even though enmity increases and suffering is characteristic of our lives in this fallen world, we can and must make progress. We cannot look around at the sinful society around us and frown and cry and do nothing. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's like our poem stops there. I'm nobody. See the heavens, I'm nobody. See the, see the nations, I'm nobody. Oh no. God, through a baby, slays an army. And God can use you to make progress for the glory of God in the world. Scripture paints a picture, a vision, of a day in which the glory of God, described in Psalm 8, will cover the earth. And we are called to advance that, to move it forward. So as I conclude, I want to challenge you with a couple of things. One, I'm not a psychologist, but this pastor is telling you that your phobias, excessive fears, sinful fears, your manias, your excessive loves, nope, they're not allowed. They're not from God. Jesus didn't die on the cross to leave you with your phobias and with your manias. Your excess fears and your excess loves need to be laid at the foot of the cross. And you need to rise up into your stature as a son of man, as a fully realized, redeemed, glorious saint, a woman or a man in the army of the Lord, dignified and majestic in your creaturely way. I think to help with this, you need to learn, pray, and sing Psalm 8. The notes in Psalm 8 are too absent. They're, they're too rare in our liturgy. They're too rare in the songs that, that you hum to yourself throughout the day. In the message you're telling yourself throughout the day, I'm not hearing enough as a pastor. I'm sort of listening in. I'm not hearing enough the beats and the melodies and the rhythms of Psalm 8. All things have been placed, are, were, and will be placed under your feet. 
So we go forth with confidence and we go forth for the Lord. But keep in mind, we don't get to define the win. He does. He says that it's babies and infants that are going to tear down armies, which means it's not always the way that you think it goes. And so what makes Christian progress difficult is that it comes in unexpected and surprising ways. And so we pray, Lord, you said you'll give me more than I ever ask or imagine according to your glorious will for me in Christ Jesus. So I prayed for a Honda, give me a Lambo. And he says, no, I'm going to give you that old Chevy because you weren't imagining that either. And it looks like a a step back, a demotion, but in fact, that old Chevy is going to be the way that I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. Don't let me, don't try to fit me into your paradigm of victory. My win is going to look surprising. I use babies and nursing infants to destroy armies. And I'm even going to use you to advance my kingdom. Amen. Father, as we close in prayer, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for what it's teaching us. It's showing us about our purpose in life. A lot of us are struggling with that. A lot of us are confused. Even on a daily basis, Lord, if we know our purpose, we easily forget My people perish for lack of knowledge, we learned this morning. And Lord, we know, but we don't remember very well. What is man that you have taken notice of him, that you have remembered us? Thank you, God, for remembering us, for not leaving us to languish in our sin, for noticing us, for turning the work of your beautiful fingers, O God, to working a glorious redemption and a renewal for us in Christ. So I pray this morning for anyone who doesn't believe, for who, whoever is still seeking, who is hesitating on, on the threshold of the household of faith. I pray you would overcome resistance and invite that one in. And that he will say, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And Lord, for the one who's burdened down with manias and phobias and unholy and unbiblical and un, unnatural fears, speaking from a redemptive standpoint, Lord, we know we have all kinds of biological and chemical issues, but so much of our problem, Lord, is unbelief and sin. So, Lord, for those who are struggling under the weight of sin, I pray that you would relieve them. They would find their identity in Christ, who is the second Adam, and the one under whose feet all things have been, are, and will be placed, and we get to join him in his victory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.